This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? Climate change is most often thought of as an environmental problem. And in past episodes, we have talked to a lot of change makers who are tackling climate change through planting trees, harnessing artificial intelligence to track natural capital, designing low carbon buildings and cities, and even using algae to scrub CO2 from fossil fuel combustion. The actors using these strategies range from individuals through small nonprofits to big corporations. Climate change is just as importantly a massive social and political challenge requiring action on the national and international stage. In democracies, we are fortunate to be able to make change happen through the people we elect to govern us. Young Canadians are now the largest voting bloc in the fast approaching 2019 Canadian federal election, making up a whopping 34% of the eligible voters. And while climate change matters to all of us, it is especially critical for young people who will be afflicted by its impacts throughout their lives. My guest today is Aaron Myron, the founder and director of Future Majority, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to amplifying the collective voice of young Canadians. And through Future Majority, it's pretty clear to me that Aaron is going to have a big impact on Canada's future. Aaron brings more than 10 years of community organizing, election organizing, and technology expertise to his work. He worked on the 2010, 2012, and 2014 U.S. elections, including campaigns in New Mexico, Georgia, Illinois, California, Colorado, and New Hampshire, as well as having been the Deputy Chief Technology Officer at a major political action organization. Aaron grew up in Toronto, and after finishing a biology degree at Queen's University, he headed down to the U.S. to cut his teeth in politics. In 2010, he became a Green Corps Fellow, where he launched a statewide grassroots campaign to influence U.S. Senators to support the federal climate bill. He then worked in Southern California, mobilizing voters to defeat Proposition 23, a ballot initiative funded by two massive oil companies that would have undermined the world's strongest global warming law. In 2012, he directed the campus Get Out the Vote in Colorado to help re-elect President Obama. Following that, Aaron spent several years developing technology for the Public Interest Network, a major U.S. political action organization, did a master's in public policy at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government, and then worked as a consultant and civic technology fellow at Microsoft. In 2018, Aaron returned to Canada to found Future Majority, a nonpartisan, not-for-profit organization to address the growing disconnection young Canadians feel from the country's current politics and politicians to unite the voice of youth across Canada, and to disrupt the status quo on Parliament Hill in Ottawa. In today's episode, I will be talking with Aaron about how he ended up as a political organizer, the role he sees for the future majority organization helping to engage the youth vote in the upcoming federal election, the critically important role of an engaged youth electorate, 
in meeting the huge environmental challenges we now face and what advice he would have for someone setting out to make a difference. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Thanks so much for making time to talk with me today, Erin. You are doing some very cool work in increasing voter participation in the upcoming Canadian federal election. The first time you told me about what you were doing, I was really impressed by both the simplicity and the potential effectiveness of what Future Majority is doing, especially how it could address the challenge of climate change action. Could you Tell us a little bit about how you became interested in the political process to start with. Sure. Uh, yeah. First off, really excited to be here. I, I grew up in a family where uh, my dad was a psychiatrist and uh, my mom's a psychologist. And so, you know, I, I don't want to talk about that, but we definitely... But that must have been a lot of fun. It was, yeah, sure. <laughs> a, a lot of fun, you know, having your parents do CBT on you as a kid. <laughs> they, they weren't really doing that, I don't think. But um, we, we definitely grew up listening to the news and discussing the news at dinner a huge amount, talking about the consequences of policy and all of these different problems. And, you know, I can remember as a really young kid that um, people would come over when there was elections and there would be some sort of party. And I didn't really understand percents at the time. So, you know, when, especially in Canada where you have a multi-party system, I didn't really understand why... 30% was higher than another one. But I understood that if you gave me raw numbers, I could understand the raw numbers. And I would refuse to go to bed until there were like raw numbers on the TV screen. So I grew up in a family where I was, we were talking about politics a lot. And then I, n- I never really did that much um, or didn't, I, w- I wasn't involved politically in high school. And um, I studied biology in undergrad. And I had a summer internship. Uh, I was really interested in how cancer was related to the food that folks were eating and things like that. And that got you interested in biology? Um, I think I was interested yeah. in science or more, you know, my parents were telling me I needed a job as a scientist to have a good life, which, you know, that's, you know, also we, we, we don't need to dig into that. <laughs> but uh, I got a job at Toronto Public Health for a summer as, a, as an intern. And this is when bisphenol A or BPA, right. all of the industry studies were saying that if you had BPA, um, it didn't have any effect on rats. And all of the non-industry funded studies were showing that if you did have BPA, rats got like a whole bunch of cancer, it, it mimicked estrogen. And um, that was causing cancer in a whole bunch of rats, especially if they were exposed at an early age. And what ended up coming across, like, you know, it wasn't me. It was like, I, was, I had some random internship just looking, doing a literature review. What I became aware of over the summer was that the industry-funded studies, they'd picked rats that were estrogen-resistant. And for me, that just totally blew my mind where it had nothing to do with if you had the right science. There were a whole bunch of companies that were going, we've picked estrogen-resistant rats. We know that people so are I getting sick. I think the term now would be fake science. Fake science, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they were really just oh, interested God. in their profits. Yeah. And to me, that was just such a clear message that, you know, having the right science isn't the answer. You really need to first educate people about what's going on, and then you need to organize folks to do something about that. And voting's just one way to do so it. So that was an internship after first year, second year? I think of- after between second and third year. Yeah. Yeah. So from biology to a sense of dealing with the social realities of biology. Yeah. Yeah. That, and maybe the solutions... So for, for climate change, which we'll talk a bunch about, we have so many solutions to climate change. And unfortunately, we're in the position that we're in 
where we're going, we need these crazy technological solutions, or some people are saying that because we've ignored these solutions, but it's all about political will. We just need people to say, you know, climate change, it's, a, it's not partisan, it's our future. And we have all the solutions out there to implement them, to start solving the climate crisis. It's not about doing more research into these problems. It's about people saying to our leaders, um, you need to address them. Biology, internship, uh, a sense that there's something going wrong. How did you decide either that politics or organization was something that you wanted to drive towards? Like, was there a concrete decision or that's interesting? I think I'll explore that some more. What what was the... So, so I ended up starting a campus. Through, all the campus clubs were all about, you know, turn off your lights and recycle. And I was initially involved with them. And I'm not a genius, but I'm smart enough to know that if you tell everybody to turn off your lights, it's not really going to solve the problem. Or if you tell people to recycle or bike, it's um, often there's like aspects of access to resources and public transit. And um, I think out of being really frustrated that there weren't any solutions where people were going, hey, it's, it's not about being a vegetarian. It's, it's fundamentally about we need to shift the way our economy works. We need policies that address these issues. That led me to, to starting a campus group that did activism around these sorts of things. And um, I was just totally hooked. It was just so much fun seeing folks get involved. You can actually see, you know, at the time we were pressuring the university to go carbon neutral. Um, what by, year by was certain that? Date. This must have been in 2007 or 2008. That's, that's early. So early. Because really 2000 was when the notion of climate change started to break to be a public issue. So mm -hmm. that's early. Yeah. But it was, it was just so much, it was so exciting. There was lots of students who were getting involved on campus. And at that point, I was just pretty hooked and going, you know, this would be an awesome job. So you finished this. up your degree at Queens. That's right. And then you headed down to the States. Yep. I'd taken a job as an organizer. Uh, I was, at this point, I was like totally phoning it in for my fourth year. And I'd taken a job. There was the 2008 Canadian elections. And I'd taken a job with the Sierra Club of Canada, just talking to students about climate change and the election, which 10 years later, I'm doing something very similar, you know, in a different way. That was just a ton of fun. I'd gone down to the U.S. as with the organization for um, a week-long organizing training, and I, I sat next to someone who said, what are you going to do next year? And I said, oh, I just wrote the GRE. I want to study environmental policy at a grad school. And they said, you know, you could do this as a job. And they put me in touch with some folks that were hiring people, and that was the only job I applied to. You know, I never ended up applying. At that time, I didn't apply to grad school. I just applied to, for a job as an organizer in the U.S., so you did some organization because you then did go to grad school. I did. Uh, in 2015, I ended up going to grad school. Yeah. So that was some, what, seven six, years? Seven six, years seven years later. Year later. Yeah. 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 What kind of stuff did you do? Like what kind of organization in the States did you do? So I, I started off working in an organization called Green Corps. I think they're known as being one of the top training programs for young people who want to like learn the skills to be an effective organizer. In the U.S., you know, it's obviously a much bigger country, but they get a couple thousand applicants and they hire 35 recent grads from undergrad. And you, uh, you spend eight weeks of classroom training, but then you spend 12 months working on different campaigns. So my, I went to Albuquerque, New Mexico, which you know, in Breaking Bad was not a popular television show back then. <laughs> uh, but had you seen it, you might have thought twice. I may have, maybe I would have thought twice, <laughs> or maybe I would have known something, but at the time they're like, you're going to Albuquerque. To, As a Canadian, you're like, what? Where is that? <laughs> You know, I didn't even know where New Mexico, I couldn't point to New Mexico on a map. 
So I went to Albuquerque not knowing a single person. The House in the U.S. had just passed a national climate bill, and um, the Senate was considering it. This was in um, August of 2009. And my job was to go to Albuquerque where I didn't know anybody, build a team of 50 activists in three weeks to come to a community meeting, and then very quickly start pressuring the senator in the state, um, which was Jeff Bingaman at the time. He was a senior senator to vote on this, this climate bill that was sitting in his committee. Yeah, so that's, that was sort of my first job. I ended up getting promoted to being the recruitment director for the organization. So I spent a few years hiring and training um, organizers. And this was before going to the K school? I did that for four years and went on, on leave in the 2010 midterm elections in 2012, presidential elections. They call them presidential elections in the US. I ran the tech at a large political action group as their deputy chief technology officer. And then um, in 2014, I was sort of feeling, I've been doing this for five, six years. I'd love to, one, improve my data science skills. Two, I'd love to sort of get a better sense of how to evaluate policy and have a bit of a, like a different perspective on these things. So I ended up going to the Harvard Kennedy School for grad school for a couple of years. What were some of the big insights or things that you took away that you didn't have coming in that would then inform what you're doing now? Was there anything there that was significant or it was some really good training and then... I think what's, um, there's some stuff around economics and statistics that were, that were really helpful. Uh, I, I did a very quantitative approach in grad school. So a lot of my friends were taking classes like, you know, soft leadership skills, but I ended up taking some like PhD statistics classes. I spent my whole second year at the engineering school. I think for me, I think of organizing as it doesn't scale. You're yeah. having conversation one person at a time changing hearts and minds, getting activists. Lots of people are, people are not used to talking to strangers. They definitely don't want to talk to strangers about politics. It's, it's an uphill battle. And so for my interest in politics and organizing is you need to be really, really, really focused on where's that leverage point where if yeah. you put young people, in our case, young people, it can be any people, to, to really put pressure on, on political leaders or corporations or whatever it might be, that that can really snap and that can have a much larger impact than if you're just having a diffuse effect. And, and that, that was, that, in, in some ways, that was my interest in, in data. So that insight or set of insights is really by the sounds of the genesis of Future Majority. Mm -hmm. Why don't we talk about how you ended up starting Future Majority? Sure. So I, I ended up moving back to Canada. Trump got elected in 2016. And regardless of political affiliations, you know, I, I would like to think the vast majority of Canadians think that that guy's a monster. I think we're, you know, we're, we're in sa a safe place to say that. For me, I was, I was, I'd, I'd always been thinking about moving back to Canada. It's where my family lives. It's like the U.S. never really felt like home to me, mainly because I grew up in Canada, but, you know, lots of reasons. But uh, just seeing folks like Trump, uh, I started to become, I think we're all afraid that that kind of hateful rhetoric that he's espousing would, would come to Canada I didn't really have a sense that I was going to start an NGO when I came back, but I wanted to come back and, and apply the technology and the data and the organizing skills that I'd learned in the U.S. back in a Canadian context. And that's, that's sort of the, that was the impetus to move back. In fact, until a few days ago, that rhetoric hadn't appeared in Canada, and all of a sudden it did with Maxine Bernier talking about Greta mm -hmm. and, and her, her uh, climate change activism. You know, I won't talk about Maxine Bernier because he's a, I'm trying to stay as 
as nonpartisan as as possible. But I can be partisan. You're you can, nonpartisan. You can, you can say whatever you partisan. want. I, I do. Th I do think there are concerns. Like broadly, when you have inequality, my feelings are that folks aren't born hating other people, and that when you have tremendous inequality, that that's really what fosters that. And so I think it's a symptom of some of some broader problems going on. And I've actually pushed you off track here. Sure. So so how did you end up getting future majority going? I was moving back. And I'd spoken to a mentor of mine saying, you know, I, I have these skills. I'm sort of talking to NGOs that are in this space. And um, the political organizing space in the U.S. has um, – there are NGOs in the U.S. like the Sierra Club in the United States or Planned Parenthood or a whole bunch of these, you know, nonpartisan organizations that do organizing – some of them are bigger than all of the political organizations in Canada combined. Like they're bigger than the conservatives, the NDPs, the liberals, the bloc, the green. They're bigger than all of those parties combined. So uh, I'd sort of been speaking to my mentor and he was sort of saying, take what one you should think of. Don't do anything fancy. Think of like what, what works really, really well in the U.S. What do you know? And if you do want to start something or if you think there's an opportunity to have a big impact – just start off with the real basics. Like initially I've been thinking of here, let's try something really innovative. But um, it started off by just going, let me look at the previous electoral returns over the last you know, 20 years. This wasn't super heavy data science stuff. This was, how do I grab the data from Elections Canada's website? How do I play around with it so it's in a structure that makes sense for what I'm looking at? And I just started just playing around and doing some data visualization on the, the trends some of it was around polling and how, how good an indicator the polling was for which ridings would be competitive. And then some of it was around, you know, I, eventually it started looking at like uh, in the last 20 years of the ridings that have been competitive, which is where you can really make a difference. You know, if, you're, if a riding is going to be decided by 20,000 votes, no one should spend resources in those places, right? Yeah, may, you know, the, for the, maybe for the sake of democracy, but if you want to elevate a cause or an issue – you're going to have a less of an effect. So I started looking at, at these places and then I started looking where, where there's young people who live in these places who 90%, close to 90% of young Canadians all think that climate change is a priority. And it turns out that regardless of all the parties, in almost every single one of the, these elections, the pattern of the, the ridings that are super competitive that could be decided by a hundred, five hundred, a thousand, even two thousand votes. A ton of them have massive colleges, trade schools, and universities, and they're not in Toronto. They're not in Vancouver or Montreal. They're in places like Niagara. They're in Sault Ste. Marie. They're in Peterborough. They're in Saskatoon. They're in the Okanagan Valley. And focusing on those places. So, so initially there was that pattern. And then I started just doing some like really boring looking at the election laws. And in 2011, there was this change where students could vote in the riding where they could go to school. That's right. So you could vote either at home or at school. And that's just a game changer because, you know, the, the reason for that law is that you want it to be easy for young Canadians to vote because they don't. And, um, you know, I have, I have my analyses for why they don't vote, but specifically by having students being able to vote in the riding where they go to school and then making it so that all they need is a student card and proof on their phone of where they live and having five consecutive days of on-campus voting, these are the sort of things that I, I was able to, to glean from the election law. As someone who's worked on a bunch of elections before, 
and both in Canada and in the U.S. done campus get out the vote um, with these folks. It's friction. It's basically frictionless to turn out voters. Yeah. So um, and and in the U.S., folks spend millions and millions and millions of dollars turning out voters uh, on campuses. And there's voter registration here. There's no voter registration. Every student not, who's walking on campus, 90% of them think that you should do something about climate change and they can all vote. It's just like a, it's, it's almost like a, it's a no brainer in terms of turning out voters. Talk a little bit about uh, the number of ridings that would have that intersection of being susceptible by uh, what tens or hundreds of votes versus or against the number of ridings that have colleges in it. You said it was quite high. So off the top of my head, I think um, I what I know right now for this election, which is what, you know, obviously what I'm thinking about, it's 40 something days away. Whatever poll tracker you're looking at right now, there's about 55 ridings that are a toss up, which means, you know, it could go either way. It's a coin toss. Uh, That's significant. It's pretty significant, especially when when we decide who who forms government could be decided by just a handful of ridings. Yeah, absolutely. Right now, 21 of those ridings have a campus on it with at least 8,000 students. So it's just really simple math. Like, so for example, in South Kitchener, where there's Conestoga College, I think there's almost 15,000 students that go to school there. And I can't remember which parties it's a toss up between. That's not something we focus on as an organization, but there's, it could be decided by less than 500 votes. Yeah. So like for students, for giving them the story of why they should vote, it's so easy. You go, I don't care if you like any of the parties, they need to listen to you. Look at the folks. There's a hundred students in the CAF. How many students are in your nursing class? How many folks do you go to the gym with? You just get like a third of all of those things to vote and no party can win without listening to what we have to say. And this election, it's so close that, you know, the ones who ignore us, they're going to need, need to find new jobs. They're going to be looking for work on October 22nd. Just run through the mechanics of how this works. You identify the ridings yep. where they're swing ridings by yep. a few hundred votes or so, or a few thousand. What, even what even like? a couple thousand votes. Between a few hundred to a couple thousand votes, yep. somewhere in there. And then the ridings that have colleges or university campuses. And where there's on-campus voting. Oh, how, what's that about? So not every campus in the country has an on-campus voting. So on, between October 5th and 9th, there'll be five consecutive days of early voting where the polls are open for 12 hours on campus. And um, we're focusing on those places because it's just it, it just makes it much easier. Are there a lot of them in, in proportion? There's a lot of them. Okay. It's most of them. But, okay. but some of them are competitive places right. where, where there is an on-campus vote. So you know the campuses that are going to be important. Yeah. How do you, future majority, how does it go about organizing to make students aware? Yeah. What are they being made aware of? Yeah. T tell us a bit more about how it works. Yep, sure. What so, success looks like when you're on campus? Yep. So the way that we're, we're operationalizing this, the way we're, we're going to have an impact is we've hired uh, 15 uh, young Canadians who started on August 16th for a week-long organizing boot camp in, in Toronto, where we went through skills like how to recruit volunteers, how to develop leaders. Uh, they're all media trained, so how to communicate effectively to the media and how to train their volunteers to communicate effectively. And then how to, how to use, uh, we've built our own software to communicate effectively with people. 
uh, especially young people. So how to use our software and digital tools. These are great life tools for these people. Great too. life tools. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know, I, I just moved back to Canada. I used all those schools to recruit friends, tools to recruit <laughs> friends. Um, so that, that was a week. And then after that, they traveled to these campuses and they're spending uh, all of August and se September canvassing on campus, talking in classes, getting student groups to, to work with them. And then on October 5th to 9th, so in, in September, they'll each get around 1,500 students to pledge to vote, which means we collect their phone, their email, their name, and their postal code. And um, we, we text them every evening to say, hey, show up for a volunteer shift tomorrow. Yeah. And we have a cool way to do that. Your volunteers are then going and recruiting volunteers on campus yep. that will then go and talk to students about the key planks of the various parties as it relates to them. Yep. So the, the 15 folks we've hired are paid staff, but they'll each build teams of 30 volunteers. And those 30 volunteers will talk to their peers on campus. So most of that is around building a team. And that's really under the message of none of the p political parties are paying attention and talking in a meaningful way about the issues young Canadians care about. But they need to listen to us because we're the largest voting bloc this election. And in this riding, you know, just a few of us need to vote. And then at the end of September, what we'll do is the students will then start canvassing their peers to the polls when there's on-campus polling locations. So they'll go, hey, Craig, have you voted yet? And you say, no. And you go, great, walk with me. And in an hour, you can walk eight people to the polls. This is happening before election day, but also election day is a big day. So they're not only getting your volunteers, but the volunteers are, are connecting with people they know and asking if they've voted. And do they have a pamphlet of what the planks are like? What is it that they decide upon? Yep. I, I'm, so tell me, what do you want me to do? Vote? Yep. What? Yep. what? So, so it would be when the polls are open on campus yep. is when they're, they're walking people to the polls. Yep. But then there's two things we're doing. Or one, we're giving them a piece of literature that summarizes all of the party's positions right. on In climate change. In a nonpartisan way. You're a charity, nonpartisan. So it's got to yep. be fact-based based on what the parties have put out. So we're brand new. So we're, we're a nonprofit. We're, we're not a charity, but we'd get that information from a charity. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, for, for them, they're the ones where they are, they are taking the time to summarize this information. The other thing that we're doing is we've built a webpage called govotecanada.ca and it goes through why you should vote, how to vote, where to vote and who to vote for. For us, these are some of the biggest barriers for, for getting involved. And so why vote? You put in your postal code and it shows you the polling for the current riding that you're in. And you can pick which party you wanna add votes to. And there's a little toggle where you increase the toggle and you see very quickly that if just two or 3% of the young Canadians eligible to vote in that riding vote, none of the parties can win. And so you're going, wow, cool. If I vote, people will listen to me. I'm powerful. We're 37% of the electorate. Yeah. The how to vote, you know, like, for us, you know, I, I'm 32. Most of the folks we're talking to and are, you know, between 18 and 24. I can't even remember the last time I mailed anything. You know, maybe I, I write thank you letters to our donors. And that's like the, you know, I have stamps and letters. The donors over 40 or 50. You know, the folks who think what we're doing is, is great and, and write us checks. But um, the voting process is not designed for young people. And so we have uh, our how to vote section is we ask young people for their home address and if they're a student, their student address, and we show them the polling for both places, they get to pick which riding they wanna vote in. So if they're voting at home, you need different ID than if you're voting at school. And then and we- School is school ID? 
at school, you need a school ID and, and you need proof of um, or something. Yeah. The easiest thing is you can just show on your phone. Um, you can pull up a bill. Oh, yeah. Great. And then uh, we ask people for their phone and email so that we can send them a calendar invite to remind them to vote and we can text them on the election day the ID they need. So that's that's how to vote. The where to vote is Elections Canada's website is really just a, you put in your postal code and it's a static web page. It's a big list of all your polling locations. And it's not there's no geography involved. So the and we've gotten okay our lawyer has said this is okay. What we'll do is the second that the polls open we're young people. We know how to use technology. We're going to scrape every single voting location from Elections Canada's website, and we're going to put it on a map. So you'll give us your postal code, and then we'll show you on a map which polling locations are near you. You'll pick the one you want to vote at, and then we'll say, what time of day do you want to vote? How are you getting there? Because there's all this evidence that if people physically make a vote plan, they're far more likely to vote. And we'll send you a calendar invite with all those details. That's where to vote. And then the last one is why to vote. And so for this, we're going, we, we've spoken to thousands of Canadians. We have a really good sense of the issues they care about. Um, we've narrowed it down to eight different issues, climate change, affordability. You can guess what they are. We go, here are these eight issues and you pick your top three. So let's say you pick climate change, healthcare, affordability. Yeah, and these are all issues that the students, the people voting that you're talking to care about most. Yes. Yeah. Yep. We've surveyed them. You know, we've had, we've had thousands of in-person conversations. So you click on the top three issues and the first screen will say climate change. And then you'll see five summaries of different ways to deal with climate change or, or different approaches to climate change, but you won't know which party they're associated with and you'll pick them. And then the same thing for healthcare, the second one for the last one for affordability. And at the end, we'll say you picked party one's position on this party so it will tell you which party's positions you picked. So it's a it's a nonpartisan way of saying, here's the different parties' positions, and at the end we'll tell you which parties you voted for. And so we feel that with all of that information, young people will understand why to vote, how to vote, where to vote, and be really informed for which party to vote for. And because we're totally nonpartisan, we, we are not getting money from parties, no one is telling us what to do. Our organization's um, leadership, we're all young Canadians that don't have anything to do with political parties. It's, we're, we're a source that folks can trust. We're totally independent, and that's a huge – for us, we're, we're youth-run and totally independent, and it's such a, it's a big strength for us to do that. What's the culture like at Future Majority? Are you the oldest one there? So I'm, I'm the oldest person. Yeah, and uh, you're in your 30s. I'm 32. Yeah. Yep. There's a few things that I think make us unique as an organization – one of them is one of the key pieces of our culture is it's not about you. And I think this is, um, so, you know, it's big pro big reason why I feel uncomfortable being in a, uh, talking about myself and, and all of these sorts of things. But, um, really the, the work is, is bigger than any individual. And I think when you have an organization that's saying the work is about one person, this is so-and-so's organization that if that person doesn't want to work there anymore, or they do something, or they, they become attacked, the organization falls apart. And fundamentally, it's about building, organizing is about building something much bigger than ourselves. The climate crisis is much bigger than you and I. It's uh, affordability is, is, is a huge problem, and you need more than just one person to deal with it. So the way that we see this is if there's opportunities to communicate in, in the media, we would say the ideal person to communicate is a volunteer 
who's participating in the campaign, and they're the ones who are spending their free time talking about climate change, about how housing isn't affordable. The next best thing would be the organizer to do it, and you've really messed up if someone on the leadership team needs to talk about it. So I think I think that's pretty unique, and I also think it means that if you want to, you know, this is super cliche, but if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Right. You know, future majority is not me. It's not my central team. It's not the 15 organizers we've hired. We're just a few days into the campaign, and we've gotten 4,000 students to pledge to vote. It's, it's about those people, and I, I think that's just really critical. Talk a bit about what the current voter participation landscape looks like now in Canada, especially among young voters. What are you up against in, in trying to organize folks? Yep. So there was an increase in young people voting in the last election. I think generally young Canadians are incredibly engaged in what's going on politically. There's a report by the Samara Center that just came out where it's young Canadians are more likely to volunteer. They're more engaged with the news. They're more likely to donate to causes than anyone else. The reason why we're not voting is none of the leaders are speaking to the issues that we care about. And the whole system is designed to not be engaging for young people. So I don't know. Do you ever take civics class in grade 10? Yeah. It's like the worst class. Yeah. They, you take when, the, when I look back on it now, it could have been the most interesting class. Could have been the most yeah. interesting class. It's like everything is political. And you take the worst, often it's the worst teacher in the school who gets stuck with this 10-week class and you're learning about, you know, what's the difference between municipal and who has control over libraries. So that's, that's a problem. The, the other people who talk to you about politics are maybe your parents or political parties and your parents have a really different view of the world. Like for me, whenever my parents would tell me to do something, when I was on the phone, I'd be like, I have to leave and just hang up. <laughs> so you've got, you've got your bad teacher. You've got the political parties that aren't speaking your language. And it sounds like your parents were very sophisticated too. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I lo love them dearly. So I think that the barriers for young people voting are that the parties are talking to demographics that vote in, that his have historically voted in higher numbers and to where there's more money. And the game changer for this election is that 37% of the electorate are young Canadians. And that's huge. It's huge. Yeah, it's and if we come in out and vote, no one can win without listening to us. And we, well, can, we can change more Canada. More to the point, you'll decide who wins. Yep. If you vote. What's your data showing on how aware young voters are about what the four parties stand for with respect to climate change? I think that folks, by and large, don't see young, young people. We, we, I think part of this has to do with the way that the, the media and companies talk about uh, problems like climate change. But I think most people think about climate change in terms of what can I do? And they think about climate change in terms of conscientious consumerism. And I think some of our role as an organization is to talk to people and we don't say, what political issues do you care about? You go, what are your concerns? What are you thinking about? And so people say climate change. And you go, great. And then it's our role to say climate change, that's a political issue. And at the end of this election, it's not going to be a partisan issue because like 87% of people can, like there is no issue out there that 87% of people are on the same page around. And because we're the largest voting bloc, it's going to be like pensions. If you told me, hey, Aaron, give me money for my campaign, I really want to get rid of pensions, right? No one would give you a dollar. 
after this election, when young people come out and vote, and for us, we're just focusing in 15 places where we can't be ignored. All of the parties are going to be going, if we don't have leaders, if we don't have nominees, uh, if we don't have platforms that reflect the values of young Canadians, we're going to be the joke party. And because in the next election, when they've seen that there's even more young people voting and we have leaders who are all going, hey, I'm really talking about the issues that you care about, millions more young Canadians will enter the political process as a result. And that in of itself will change Canada's political landscape forever. Assuming there are a few politicians listening to this podcast and they're not sure what young voters care about, what do young voters care about that you're seeing? Yep. Hearing? So first and foremost, the top three things in no particular order are climate change. So tons of folks say, I don't know if I'm going to have kids. Yes, I'm hearing that. Uh, the millennials working with me. Yep. That's a real discussion. Yep. So that's huge. How dark? How sad? Right? Yeah. Would you want to live in a world where you have heat wave summers? Yeah. No, I, I, I would be thinking the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that, that one's easy. It's climate change. And talking about real action that does what scientists say needs to, to happen. So that's the first. The second is just obviously around affordability. So it differs from how folks describe it. But if you're in um, a city, it's saying, you know, cities have become playgrounds for the rich. It's saying that rent is extremely expensive. I can't buy a home. If I'm going to have a job, it's going to be a contract job without benefits. If you're outside of the cities, it's saying, hey, most folks that we speak to, their aspiration is not to move to Toronto if you're living in the exurban areas. Their aspiration is to have a really good job, that they can have a good life in the communities they grew up in. And they're saying there aren't jobs for us to do that. So affordability is linked with jobs. With jobs. Clearly, yeah. Yep. And benefits associated with precarious work. And then the third is access to mental health services. That's interesting. And I think that's something that if you're like a, a pollster or, you know, a political hack, you'd go, no way, we're not seeing that. But if you show up on campus and you hang out in the cafeteria with a cup of coffee and talk to people for 20 minutes, they go, first off, like our generation, young Canadians, we're, we're, like, we're in touch with who we are in a way that that older generations aren't. And some people might go, oh, you know, that's a weakness. But for us, like, if we're feeling anxious or sad, in some ways it's our greatest strength, right? It means we can be vulnerable, we can speak from the heart. And in a lot of ways, it's destigmatized for our generation. So counseling is extremely expensive. And then if you're on campus and there's free counseling, what we're hearing a lot from folks is you call and you say, I'm feeling anxious or I'm feeling sad, I'd love to talk to someone to get some tools so that I can stop getting in my own way, or if I feel, feel those ways, to have an understanding of what that is. And the first question you get from a counselor is, are you thinking of hurting yourself? And if the answer is no, they go, you're in line, might be like three to six months. And so that's, that's just a really big issue for our generation, and I think it's something that's often overlooked. So when your organizers are talking to students, and presenting the various planks of the parties. These are the filters that the students are using. These are some of them, some of them around healthcare, some of them are around LGBTQ plus issues. Some of it is around election reform. Some of it is around doggy daycare. No, I'm just joking here. <laughs> Tell us more about what Future Majority is doing to address the knowledge gap between yep. what the parties are doing and their concerns. I think the biggest thing is the messenger. 
young Canadians know about, if you go, hey, there's protests going on in Hong Kong. We're engaged. We know that there's protests going in Hong Kong. We know more than the older generations, right? I think that the biggest thing is who's talking to them about these problems. And I think it can be really overwhelming as a young person to be aware of all these problems that are going on and saying like, how do I do something about it? And then for us, we have an organizer who comes to this campus and says, hey, the fight, it's not between me and you. It's between us and these systems that are taking place. And as individuals, yeah, it sucks. It's lonely out there. But if we come together and we build something that's bigger than ourselves, we can really do something about that. And um, we see that every day in our numbers where we talk to young people and we text them in the evening and say, great meeting you on campus. Do you want to get involved tomorrow? And people show up. You know, we're, we're a week and a half into our campaign and we have dozens of volunteers all across the country who are coming together and want to do something about this. So what are the biggest challenges future majority faces in connecting with voters, young voters? I think there's a lot of barriers. There's a lot of structural barriers and there's a lot of barriers with the actual parties um, that are out there. I've talked about some of the structural barriers already around the polling locations um, being far away, especially in rural places. It's, you know, we're, we're talking about campuses. There's a lot of young Canadians who aren't in post-secondary institutions. Uh, so that's one of them. I also think it's, it's this, this faith that if we come out and vote and you, you know, we're voting for people who we might not even like, you know, around what they're saying they're doing or it's closest to what we believe, having that belief that if we come out and vote and show that we're powerful, these politicians will be accountable to us. And I think there's like some fundamental flaws in Canada's parliamentary system that make our system illiberal. You know, it's obviously not as bad as the United States where you have gerrymandering and Citizens United where corporations spend like billions and billions of dollars influencing the political process. But um, it is difficult to tell someone, hey, your vote's gonna count when, you know, your riding could be decided by a really large margin or you're saying, hey, vote for the party that you like the most, but they may not have a chance in winning so your vote doesn't count. I think those are really big threats to Canada's democracy as a whole. And I think that whoever leads the country in our next parliament, it's gonna be a huge leadership opportunity to talk about those issues and have some, some meaningful reforms. And I'm not a policy expert on these things, so I'm not gonna tell you what they are, but I would say in the next election or going forward, whoever's elected as leader, if they don't address these problems, they're the biggest threat to our democracy. It's not Russian trolls. It's not disinformation. People are smart enough to know what's going on. It's a fundamentally illiberal democracy, and that's the biggest threat. Tell us a bit more about how you maintain that nonpartisanship in the face of climate change having become such a very partisan issue. I mean, yep. you're a charity that has to be nonpartisan. Yep. But I would think that a lot of people would see uh, climate activism as inherently being... Yep more on the liberal side of the spectrum than the conservative side of the spectrum. Yep. So, so for us, we, we never tell anyone who to vote for. And it's, it's just really simple. We just would never tell anyone who to vote for. And we don't even go, here's an issue you should care about. We have like these really deep conversations where I go, hey, are you planning on voting in October? Just like picture you're in the cafeteria and I come up to you and I'm smiling and I go, can I join you for a couple minutes? And they go, sure. You know, strangers, who is this guy? who's this person, right? But you know, this I'm, old person, <laughs> well, well, they're not, they're, they're young Canadians. Yeah. And I, you know, I spent January doing this and people are still fine with it. And you go, cool. What are you studying? What year are you in? Where'd you grow up? Cool. 
You go, are you voting in October? And they go, there's an election in October? You go, yeah, there's an election. And you go, well, um, do you feel that your members of parliament are listening to you? And folks say no, because their MPs aren't hanging around on campus. And if they are, it's every four years. And then you go, well, who do you think they're listening to? And you, they go baby boomers, they go oil companies, they say elites in the cities. And you go, well, um, what are the things that are bothering you in your life? What would you like to see that's different? And then they bring up the issues. So we never tell them what to vote on. It just happens that 90% of these students go, oh my God, there's this huge problem that scientists keep saying that if we don't do something about it, We're our fly. lives are over. Yeah. And so we're, you know, we don't need to, it's just what young people care about. And you're laying out, here are the various policy planks of the parties. Look, yep. you figure it out. On our website, you don't even need to click on, on what's a partisan, you know, we don't even need to pick which issue you, you don't even need to talk about climate change. It just happens that 90% of young Canadians care about climate change. Who's missing from the discussion? Who's missing from the discussion? That should be there. That, yep. that may not be there now. So I think the voices that are missing from the discussion are young Canadians who don't live in cities, who feel climate change and who feel economic woes on a day-to-day basis. And um, talking about how the policies that get enacted as a result of this new government, it's really going to have effect on their lives. So we have an employee who isn't able, is, she's, she's only 20 years old and she wasn't able to go back to university for her third year because living in Montreal, going to Concordia was too expensive between rent, between yeah. tuition yeah. and um, dropped out of school. And um, I think those are the stories, you know, we all know folks who've had something like that happen to them, especially if you know young people. And I think those are the stories that aren't being amplified and, and it's amazing that for this, for this person, that what they've decided to do is to organize. They're going, the way that Canada's policies and our government's policies are set up drastically impacted my life. There are so many opportunities that this person won't have just because they don't have two more years of post-secondary education. And what they're saying is the way I'm going to do something about it is not to, to sulk, is I'm going to talk to other young Canadians and I'm going to say, we have power. We need to do something. About we need this. to do something about it. We can make our lives better as a result. What keeps you going when things look dark? What gives you hope? I think you need to have hope in order to do this work. I love reading. You know, during the election, the whole team's putting in, you know, easily 80 hour weeks. During our um, August organizing boot camp, I think we definitely clocked like a 105 hour week for folks. So I'm reading very little. But uh, I like to read history. There's a great book called Bury the Chains by Adam Hothschild. I just finished it. Just finished it. It's yes. fantastic. And I think for me, there's a, there's a bunch of takeaways. But one of them how is- How to organize effectively, first of all. How that to organize was a great book for organizing. Totally. It's a, it's a story of how organizing takes time. It's not a silver bullet. But you can work at something and you can be down in the trenches working on a cause or an issue or a problem that you care about. And you might not see any change. And people might humiliate you at the beginning and say, you're crazy, you know, or we will never change that. And you might not see change until the end of your life or after a lifetime, but this stuff really, really, it makes a really big difference. And 
it's hard to keep that in mind when you're when you're removed from the process and it's against the grain. But um, just looking at history and seeing that social movements, if you really want to have a paradigm shift, this book is about the activists around the world who um, ended the slave trade. Yeah, uh, abolition of slavery in the uh, 17th and 18th centuries. In the, United, in the United Kingdom. In the yeah. United Kingdom. Yeah. And most of those people didn't live to see, and there's still a huge amount, there are residual problems, there's still slavery. It's the work is not finished, but the folks doing that work did not see the results during their lifetimes. Or no, maybe and, they did just at the end. It was Andrew Clark that really was the main activist for his whole life. And he died, I think, 20 years before the Brits abolished the slave trade Yeah, yeah in 1835. What advice would you give to listeners about how they can make a difference? Mm -hmm. So I'll be selfish. We're still trying to raise $20,000, $40,000. If we can raise more money than that, then um, we can talk to more young people about voting. And so get, give futuremajority.ca so future yeah. and you can donate to us. I think we'll, we'll a, put that on the website. Put that on the website. Great. If you have resources supporting folks who are doing this kind of work, it's a really um, resource constrained uh, market is the totally weird way to say this. It's a, or even industry, you know, we're social movements. We're not, money isn't growing on trees. We're obviously not the only ones doing this. There's some really exciting stuff with the climate strikes coming up in um, September 20th and 27th. Um, so I think that's one thing. Also, if you want to get involved with us, you can just go to futuremajority.ca slash join. If you put in your information, you'll get a text message with us asking you to get involved. And they're like humans behind those. It's The text messages are automated, but then we can text back and forth with you and we can plug you into a call and help you start. We can give you access to our tools that we've built to let you really effectively organize your community. I think generally our society will be better off and if folks want to get involved with a civically engaged population who are holding elected officials accountable. Some of it's educating other people. So if there's problems you're seeing, don't just post them on social media, educate other people. But education is not enough. You have to then activate people to get them involved. And I, I, I think it's really important to not just get deluded that just signing a petition online is, is fine. I think about like, what is the theory of change where me signing this petition or me showing up to a, a protest in Toronto about an issue, I think that's super important. But, you know, for me, I'm, I like to think I'm an analytical person. Maybe I'm not. But uh, thinking about like, how does this, me spending my time doing this, what is, what is my theory for how this will change a decision maker, elevate some, an issue in the media? Um, yeah, th those, are some, those are some of my thoughts. I'm super plugged into like, how do we turn out young people in politically important places so that politicians can't ignore us? So um, I, I'm, maybe I'm a little biased that I think that's like the, the most critical way or the biggest way you can make an impact, at least for the next 42, 42 days. Right. At the start of the election cycle. Yeah. At the end of each interview, I've typically been asking guests three rapid fire questions. Yep. And the first question I like to ask is, what books related to these issues do you most often recommend or gift to other people? Yep. So I, I think Bury the Chains is one of them. I love that author, Adam Hochschild. King Leopold's Ghost is another really great book. I'm not the biggest fan of the primers on how to organize. I think that organizing is fundamentally like you talk to one person, then you talk to another person, then you talk to another person. So uh, for me, it's just looking at history books where, where there've been social movements that I find really inspiring. There is a book, uh, Grapes of Wrath, uh, Steinbeck, uh, Indubious Battle. 
is uh, fiction and it's labor organizing and it's totally different than what we're doing, but I adore that book and I think it's a, it's just a ton of fun. And I'll just like, if someone's getting into organizing, I'll be like, you should read Indubious Battle. It's a, it's a fun book. Cool. Second question. What key things would you teach a first year university class to help them better understand how to create more sustainable cities, a better world? I would teach them pol something political. I'd go, I'd have students go, what are the issues you care about? And then I would have them go, cool, let's, let's just discuss how that's a political issue. It's not a personal or it's not a consumer. It's not a lifestyle issue. It's political. And I would just have people start thinking that way and they'd, they'd be engaged and the policy would follow. And third question, if you could publish a full page spread in the Saturday Globe and Mail of anything you wanted, written or graphic, what would it be? I would, I would say 37% of the electorate are young Canadians. If you vote, you can have a better life and we could ensure that Canada is a leader on, on the issues that matter to young Canadians. And, um, you know, some cool infographics. Tell them to go to govotecanada.ca. Right, definitely. Yeah. We'll, put the, we'll put the URL in there. And finally, what request would you make of listeners about what they can do to be part of making a difference in meeting the challenges of the 21st century imperative? I think, you know, for, for us, like Future Majority, we're talking about getting young people involved. First off, you don't have to be a young person to, to do that. I think the easiest thing to do is go, what's a problem that you're seeing? Where's something where you think about that problem and you go, I feel angry, I feel sad, I feel unnerved. You feel, you feel something in your gut that's something that's wrong with the world. And you know, I challenge anybody to go, the world is perfect, it's fine. There's a huge amount of privilege we have as Canadians, but there's obviously a lot to do. And then I think just thinking about like, what are the things that you can do that are structural that you can address them? That think beyond how do I recycle or how do I do meatless Mondays or things like that? What's something that's in my backyard that I could make a change around those issues? And then talk to other people because if you're feeling that, other people are gonna, are gonna feel that same problem as well and, and talk about how you can get them to come together and participate around things like that. And before we sign off, where can listeners connect with you and find out more about Future Majority? So we're futuremajority.ca. That's our main website. That's where you can get a sense of how to get involved and plugged in. And then um, if you want to share with your peers, you want to educate yourself about all the parties' different positions, it's govotecanada.ca. That's great. And if they want to get a hold of you and talk more to you? My phone number, no, I'm just joking. It's, <laughs> Definitely uh, don't want to give your phone number or email there. Aaron at futuremajority.ca is how to, how to get in touch with me personally. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time, Aaron. It's been a lot of fun. My pleasure. This was awesome. Thanks for, thanks for letting me talk about, you know, what I'm, what I'm passionate about and what we're working on. Thanks. You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website. Until next time, thank you for listening.